sacrifices. You've got to make sacrifices for your team. To answer your question. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Inside Position with me, Tom Halpin. Today's guest is Canadian standout grappler and master of the half guard position, Jake McKenzie. Jake was one of the first people I met that was living the classic jiu-jitsu lifestyle down in Brazil, training and competing there all the time. So it was really interesting to chat to him, pick his brain about how that situation came about, how his experience was, and also some of his competition success and struggles that he had along the way. I hope everyone enjoys the chat. So here we go with Jake McKenzie. Hi Jake, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks Tom, thanks for having me on brother. I don't know if you know this actually, but you're the first black belt that I ever met in my whole career back when I was a white belt training in my hometown. No way. So you were basically a Jedi Knight to me when I first met you. I was on, I was very young in the sport. I didn't really know that you could live from the sport and do jiu-jitsu every day and that it could be more than a hobby. So I was wondering how you got the idea that it could be more than a hobby. Kind of like when I was like maybe like 14, I, I had this dream I was going to try to do jiu-jitsu and... I was interested in MMA and stuff like that too, but I'm from like a super small place, kind of similar to your story. I had access, I guess, at the start to really good people because there was a black belt there for a while, for maybe like two years. And I told people I wanted to do jiu-jitsu for a living. When I told people that, everybody thought it was, you know, crazy. There wasn't a lot of opportunities at the time, but honestly, I think I had a lot of stuff kind of like just fall into place. Like, um, you know, I was able to start doing tournaments, which was kind of a good idea on my part, which I was able to make some money. The exchange rate in Brazil was good at the time, so I could go to Brazil for a longer period of time, and that money would last me a little bit longer. But I was doing like the six months in Canada and six months in Brazil, which was good, but it wasn't ideal because I would have like six months off competition. And then I got an opportunity with Cyborg, where I lived in the gym. I mean, that was something that was really good. And I had a couple opportunities following my lap there, too, where, you know, just a couple like little work opportunities. We'd work at tournaments sometimes on the weekends, but I kind of played it by ear and things kind of just started to happen, you know? So you kind of knew early on that you actually wanted to live from jujitsu. How far into your career were you when you were thinking, oh, maybe I can actually do this? Well, I'd probably say like that idea started popping in my head when I was like 14. I just didn't really have any idea how to do it. You know, I just figured out if something happens, if there's an opportunity that happens, I'll jump at it, you know? And I did have a lot of things fall into my lap, um, just kind of by coincidence. And I, you know, I didn't think twice about taking the opportunity when they did come along. What did your family think of you telling them that you wanted to be a jiu-jitsu pro? They probably didn't even really know much about it, did they, at the time? Oh, they thought I was kind of crazy. I think after a while, when I started to have a little bit of success in Brazil and then going, went to the States and I won a couple of big tournaments there and they saw that things were kind of starting to fall into place, I think that, uh, they started to see that it was more realistic. Um, they were definitely the first people that believed in me too, you know, but, and my parents didn't really know what to do. I was terrible at school. I hated school right from the get go. You know, I was always bad at school. So there was no like plan B because I couldn't get into university. So I think they thought it was a little bit crazy at the start, but when things started to happen, I think they were definitely the first people that kind of believed that it was a possibility. That nearly seems like a benefit that you weren't expected to go to college and have a really high, like, academic-style career, you know? Yeah, they didn't have any hope for me for college at all, Tom. Zero. <laughs> it worked out well, so. Because I know in my own, I was always kind of naturally good at school since I was a young age. So it was a bit of a surprise when I started kind of dropping out of college and saying that I wanted to focus on jiu-jitsu. My parents understood, but let's say my further family thought I was absolutely off the rails like but then again when I started winning some some other big things they kind of started to come around 
What was the first tournament you won that made it feel worth it? I would actually, I think I, the, the first time that I, I thought that like maybe the goal was doable because in the room I would do good against good guys at my belt level and stuff like that. I had beat a couple of good guys in like local tournaments in Rio and stuff like that, but I had never beat any like one that was like a world beater. But the first tournament that I realized that, hey, maybe this is possible for me to, to do this at a high level, um, I fought like the state championship in Rio, which used to be a, a huge tournament. Now it's there's so many federations that are so split up. It's not as big, but you used to get like 3000 competitors for this tournament. I ended up losing the first round and I trained so hard. And I was doing really good in the smaller competitions. I was like, man, I just completely like shit the bed on this one. I ended up losing on stalling penalties. Um, I got up and I got really nervous. I was just holding the guy, you know, and I dissolve, deserve the stalling pen penalties. So the coach that I was with, he signed me up for the absolute. And he's like, you're going to do the absolute. And I was like, no, man, I just want to go home. I don't want to do the absolute. And I ended up doing like, uh, I ended up doing a lot of matches. I ended up doing like five or six, I think I did five matches. I had to buy through the first round and I fought just guys that were way bigger than me. I didn't fight anybody that was close to my weight. And I remember I got in the semifinals and I beat a guy named um, Sergio Teixeira. Tyson was his nickname. And he was a two-time two world champ. I think he was a blue belt and purple belt world champ at super heavyweight. He beat Adolfo Vera. He beat Bernardo Faria. He beat a lot of the top guys at that time. I ended up beating him. I remember I was so scared to fight him because he was just like, I thought, man, there's no way I can beat this guy. He's bigger than me. He's stronger than me. He's better than me. I ended up having a really good match with him. I ended up beating him like four to two. And uh, I ended up losing in the finals of the absolute, actually. So I, I ended up losing, I think, uh, by an advantage in the finals of the absolute. But after the tournament, I was like, man, shit, I beat some really good guys today. And like, I beat a guy that I thought that I'd never be able to beat, you know? You were someone that traveled a lot, like when you were just coming up through the belts. How did those kind of opportunities to travel come about? Because there wasn't that many people at the time who were traveling to Brazil or traveling to other places like that. So like I had another, like I was talking to my mom about this the other day, like, I had a lot of things kind of like fall into place. Like I'm from a tiny little town in Nova Scotia. The place where I'm from is uh, like 10,000 people, the population. And my dad came home one day and he was like, hey, there's, I met this, this guy, this Brazilian kid. And he lives right down the street, you know. And he said that he does jujitsu. And so he came up to the house and we became really good friends. The year that he stayed in Canada, he was doing an exchange program there. He didn't wasn't really like really interested in training. He was more interested in partying and meeting the Canadian girls, you know, he was like, man, you're not going to drag me to a gym every day. But we became really good friends in school. Uh, Lucas was his name. And his mom invited, she's like, well, you know, I know Jake's a really good friend of yours. If he wants to come to Brazil for a couple of months during the summertime, he can do that. He can stay with us. So it was really easy for me the first two or three times I went because I had a big support system, you know, like I had a place I could stay at. I didn't have to pay any of the bills. There was a really good gym right down the road. I would walk to the gym a couple times a day to train. And then in 2006, I decided I was going to go to Rio because where I was staying in Brazil, there wasn't a ton of tournaments. I was in Espírito Santo, which is like in the Southeast. And I ended up going to Rio for eight months the first time. And there I was a lot more like on my own, but I realized after the eight months that I could do it. So I was like, man, I'm going to take this trip every year. I'm going to come home, organize a tournament or try to organize a couple of seminars. Cause I was a purple belt at the time, but where I'm from, there was a purple belt was like super rare. And uh, I just would raise up a little bit of money and then I would go to Brazil for, for six months. And then soon afterwards, I got the opportunity with Cyborg. So I would do six months in Miami, six months in Rio. Learning the Portuguese, obviously, is kind of a necessity when you go to Brazil, especially Rio, I'd say. Did it take you long to kind of settle in and feel like a bit less of a gringo, I suppose? 
Oh, yeah. It took me a long time. People ask me all the time now. They're like, oh, man, you learned Portuguese so quick, blah, blah, blah. I don't like the people that knew me then that knew how long it took me. It took me forever to learn Portuguese. You know, I think my learning curve was a lot harder than a lot of people, you know, but I lived down there so long that I I think I picked it up eventually, you know. I have a friend that learned Portuguese when he was in uh, Rio as well, but he learned it kind of the classic favela style Portuguese. And he didn't he didn't really know that it was that kind of style that he was learning. So he was using loads of slang words, loads of bad words. He would be talking to nice old Brazilian women and he would be saying the most rude stuff on the planet and kind of being unaware of it. You got to watch out. There's two schools of thought there. And the, that's the thing, like in the gym, most of the guys you're training with are using that language all the time. I, I've been in the same situation where I... I've used words that probably weren't the most appropriate or the for the best for the situation as well, you know? The connection with Cyborg then, how did that come about? Because it seems like another random occurrence. One of the guys that I actually lived with my first trip in Brazil, it was kind of crazy. Pedro, he's a really good friend of mine. And he grew up like training with Cyborg. Pedro Paulinho is his name. Really good competitor. Never really took jiu-jitsu serious at all. Like trained like once or twice a week. I trained at BTT for one, like six months when I was there. And at the time, BTT was like a super strong school. I think they had won the team's championship for the Brazilian nationals, not for the Brazilian teams, but for the actual thing. They won the overall teams. They were like a super strong team. I could go pretty good with all the purple belts there. I I felt like I was one of the better purple belts at the gym, and they had like a huge squad of guys. And Pedro was a purple belt there at the time. And this guy would smash me into the ground. Like I would do good with everybody, and he would tap me four times in a round. But he was super cool. We became friends. I ended up living with him actually at one point. He didn't speak any English. I didn't speak any Portuguese. So it was kind of crazy, the living situation. But he grew up training with Cyborg. So I met Cyborg uh, in Rio for the Brasileiro. And uh, he spoke really good English already because he'd done an exchange program in the States. We kind of hit it off. And he told me, he's like, hey, why don't you come do the state championship in Mato Grosso do Sul, where he's from? And uh, we ended up taking a bus from Rio to there. It took us like 30 hours to get there by bus. And we ended up training to fight sports a little bit. And I got to, I became closer friends with Cyborg. And then the next year, the Worlds were in um, in California. And I ended up staying with Cyborg. He was like, hey, we got an extra spot if you want to stay. Because I didn't know who I was going to stay with, you know. I ended up hanging out with him for like the two weeks. We trained a bunch. After that, he got the opportunity in Miami. So I, I actually lived in the very first fight sports in Miami that was on um, Arthur Godfrey in Miami. So I lived in the gym there for a while. And I lived in three of the different fight sports there. I lived in that one. I lived down in the one in North Miami Beach. And I lived in the one that was a movie theater, too, for a little while. But that's how I got the opportunity with him. And I learned a, a ton of jiu-jitsu with Cyborg. He's the man. Living in the gym, it seems like you've done that a bit. Obviously, when you're kind of starting off in the sport, you have to do it to cut costs. How did you find that? And especially now, I find myself, once I kind of move away from that college-style lifestyle, it's harder and harder to go back. So how do you find when you look back on those times, they were tough, but they're probably some of the best times as well, I'd say, are they? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think I had some of the best times of my life living in the gym. Like I lived in, I lived in Cyborg's gym on and off for maybe from 2007 till 2000, the end of 2011. So, and then I lived in GF team. I lived in the Kashanga there in the gym there in Brazil for like a little under three years. And I could like, if I, I think about it now, like I have the comfort of my house, like I couldn't go back and do it now. Like I would just like, if someone told me, Hey, you got to go back and live in the gym for a year. I'd be like, Oh, this is gonna be a nightmare, you know, cause I've been through it, you know, but like you said, it was some of the best times in my life. Like me and Jaime Canuto were roommates for, for three years. And then we lived outside the gym for another four or five years together. 
You know, we go to tournaments every weekend and you're just immersed in the jujitsu all the time. And, you know, I ended up living with a lot of guys that are like Gutenberg Pereira. I lived with him for a long time in the gym. Max Jimenez, Jaime. There's just a couple guys that come to, to my head, you know, right off the, you know, just randomly. But I had a lot of good times living with those guys and learning jujitsu and just kind of living that lifestyle. Yeah, I find it's really nice as well to be, as you said, immersed in it all the time, because I feel the last year hasn't been the same. It's like you go training once a day and then you come home and you're not as immersed in it. Like you wouldn't be teaching as much classes, spending as much time with your friends from the gym where you could just an idea would pop into your head and you'd be like, lie down there on the floor and let me try out this move on you kind of thing. You know, you're absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. From all the training you've been doing in America and Brazil, what would be some of the main differences you would see between the two of them? Because I've trained in both places as well, and they do seem quite different. Yeah, absolutely. I think just stylistically, like, there's lots of stuff that I encounter in Brazil, like, especially here in Canada, too. Like, in Canada, I actually have, like, a lot of good guys to train with here um, in Nova Scotia right now. We're starting to build the association GF team here, and I'm lucky I have a lot of good training partners. And I told the guys the other day, they're like, well, what's the difference between Brazil, you know, and the States and Canada? And it's just stylistically the way the guys play, like half guard a lot of times. I play a lot of half guard. So I find in North America, guys approach more like a underhook cross face and try to smash you or they'll go body lock in the half guard. And you don't really you don't really see that that much in Brazil. You see that guys try to like um, guys have really good knee cuts. Guys seem like they have a little bit more like a variety in their game sometimes. Long step is another thing that I don't see that much, you know, when I'm training in North America. But like I think it's stylistically like two of you like put it on a scale like the wrestling in North America is a lot better so a lot of the wrestling situations you get in like for the dogfight in Brazil if I'm in Brazil if I go dogfight I know it's fairly easier to take the guys down that don't have a huge wrestling base than if I get some guy that was a you know D2 or D3 wrestler or even a D1 wrestler I know it's going to be like hell to get them down I'm gonna have to use a lot more like jujitsu based stuff than you know just trying to wrestle them down and coming up as well, Brazil was always like, to me, the mecca of jiu-jitsu. Like, I felt like I couldn't get my black belt without going to Brazil at least once. And the culture was very Brazilian when I was coming up. And it seems to be going away from that a little bit more. I don't know if that's just because I've been doing more nogi recently, but how do you see it now? I don't hear as many people recommending people to go to Brazil as they did in the past. I was wondering, do you think there's a reason for that? Or have you noticed that as well? Or maybe I'm missing the mark. No, I think you're right on the mark, actually. like It's kind of crazy the way that jiu-jitsu is going now because it's going in so many different avenues. You know, like Noki is, is blowing up, um, especially with all the stuff from Flow Grappling, with them doing the Who's Number One events. It's really kind of even out the playing field, you know, because before... Definitely, if you look in the gi, the Brazilians are still ahead. There's no way that you can argue with the numbers of the podiums at the world championships, you know. But now you look at no gi, it's a much more level playing field. Like you see a lot of European guys. You see the Dan and her death squad. Those guys are dominating. You see there's a lot of good Brazilian guys still, but it does seem like a much more even playing field. I think with the gi on, a lot of the events too where they kind of migrated to the States and a lot of the bigger gyms are there, you're seeing a lot less people – Going down to Brazil where, you know, you go to Rio, Rio is dicey. It's a little bit dangerous. It's much easier if you want to go to Legion or if you want to go to Atos or if you want to go to any of these big schools in San Diego, you know, you can go to the gym and you don't have to be worried about some of the external things, you know, just from your environment there, you know. But like I was, I was, did a, I was just in Brazil a couple of months ago and I did a couple of tournaments down there and the level of the tournaments is always crazy. But honestly, the scene there for Nogi is so small. 
I think that there is a big difference. I think like it's much different for the guys that are in Brazil that are living in Brazil compared to the Brazilians that are living in the States or, you know, abroad that are in that no gi scene. I think it is, I think it is behind because everything is so gi focused. And you yourself, have you been focusing mostly on the gi or have you been kind of doing more no gi stuff? Because I know a few years ago you made a run at like the ADCC trials and I was just wondering how you would kind of adapt going from gi to no gi. So for me, luckily where I play a lot of half guard, it wasn't a super hard transition when I was focusing on no gi. And when I lived with Cyborg, we trained a lot of Nogi. We trained with that Popovich crew there. I've known Wagner for a long time, you know, and he was a long time training partner. So I, when I did that, I kind of focused for like about a year. I, I won the Brazilian nationals twice, Nogi at black belt adult at middleweight. And, uh, and actually I went for like a long period of time where I had never lost a Nogi match. And people told me like, man, maybe you should do Nogi. And I tried to do the, I did the trials in Brazil and I lost in the fifth fight, I think in double overtime. The worst match you've ever seen in your life. It was just complete stalling for me and the guy. I Right now, I've just been focused on the gi because I've been doing this AGP tour, the Abu Dhabi stuff. So I'm currently ranked number one in the weight division and in the and overall um, for Master One. So I've really been focusing my time on that. But I have been training a little bit of no gi here because there's some UFC guys, Gavin Tucker in particular, and I've been helping him once or twice a week. I do enjoy training in the gi more, but... I do like training nogi as well. And there's like a lot of people say like, oh, you know, training nogi is not going to help your gi. That's completely off the mark. If you train nogi, it'll definitely help your gi game. It'll make your squeeze better. It'll make your wrestling better. Guillotines are an awesome attack that people don't really use that much in the gi that you can apply to gi grappling as well. You know, I think one helps the other just the, the ex exact same amount. I don't think one, you know, I don't think if you train gi, it's going to help your nogi more or, or vice versa. I think they're going to help, you know, the same. And for the half guard specifically, how have you changed that to the nogi style? Have you been adding in some leg locks to it or focusing on more back takes? So actually, it's funny because I trained yesterday nogi. I hadn't trained in maybe like a month because I had been in Brazil. And then then Gavin, the guy that I trained nogi with, he went away as well. It is a, I'm still trying to adapt to it now because before when, like, when I was doing the ADCC trials and I did those events, first heel hooks weren't really into the mainstream. And in the IBJJF, you weren't able to do them. So... I could play reverse half guard without any threat of the guy going to my legs, you know? And like you were saying about worm guard, we were just like, oh, man, this is terrible. I feel the same way about the saddle because I've never really trained no gi for the saddle. Like when we did the ADCC trials, I trained for two or three months for it. And Julio was like, oh, you, are you training heel hook defense? I was like, my plan is just not to get there. If I get there, I know I'm screwed, you know? So that's something I've been trying to play with a little bit. I've just kind of modified my attacks a little bit to to defend my feet. Um, and that's kind of the growing pains I'm going through right now. But the game has definitely changed uh, Noki with all the heel hook stuff. And, you know, if you don't know it, like, honestly, I don't really know it very well at all. I focus so much of my life into training in the gi. If you're not able to defend those or be comfortable in those scrambles, it's impossible to be successful with the no gi, you know? It seems to be very frustrating for some people who are at such a high level and then they can get caught out by someone that they're way better than overall, but they just have that specific knowledge in that little position. Yeah, Ryan Hall was a master of that when he was a purple belt. Like Ryan, I used to live with Ryan. I lived with Ryan for like over a year. You know, I've trained with him a lot. And Ryan would always talk about when he was like a, a blue and a purple belt, he would tap guys that were way better than him because they had zero knowledge in the 50-50 or in the heel hook game. And he was an expert at that, you know, and that was probably the only thing at that time that he really was an expert at, you know. And Ryan had a good deep half guard as well back in the day. It seems like deep half guard especially used to be much more popular 
than it is now, actually. I don't see many people talking about it or doing it. Why do you feel that is? I think like everything, things kind of go in trends. And, you know, I honestly, I kind of prefer that it's kind of obscure now because I started to have more success at the adult black belt level later in my career. Like when I was already at master's, like I started having my best years when I was 30, 31, 32, because I think people only have so much time that they can dedicate into what they're going to, okay, I want to get good at, you know, defending the beer and bowl. I want to get good at defending lasso. So like when Deep Half Guard was really popular, like 2007 to 2011, maybe, or maybe even 2010, I, everybody knew how to defend it. So I'd have to have a whole bunch of tricks up my sleeve. Now, a lot of times I get people there and they don't really know what is going on, but it definitely has gone out of style. Like you can count the half guard players, the amount of them at black belt adult, like on one hand almost, you know? Was there some early inspirations you had for the half guard or how did you start to get into that? So this is funny. I, I told somebody this story the other day. So I did a private lesson with a guy here that came to Nova Scotia and I was young. I was like maybe 15 or 16 and uh, I roll with him and it was, I felt like I did really good in the role, you know? And I asked him afterwards, I was like, Hey, what do I got to get good at? And I really was just kind of fishing for a compliment. I was like a 15 or 16 year old kid, you know, I was just wanting to tell me, Hey, you know, you're, you're really good, you know? And, uh, I remember he did pass my half guard a whole bunch of times, but this guy was kind of like an asshole to me. He was like, man, your half guard sucks. Like you have no half guard game. Like you need to learn how to do that because someone's just going to get there and smash you. And maybe like three or four months later, I ended up going to Brazil for the very first time. And, uh, another kind of just kind of crazy coincidence that happened in my life. Like, the school, the school that I went to, the head instructor was this guy, uh, Eduardo Gemelon. He's the guy that invented the deep half guard. He taught it to Jeff Glover. He taught it to Bill Cooper. And he taught it to me. And I didn't really go with the intention. I didn't even know that he was this half guard master, but he would just teach half guard every day. And I remember in the class thinking like, man, I hope we learn like a guard pass or like maybe some close guard one day. But it was like three months of half guard. And I remember when I came back to Nova Scotia, my uncle Kevin I was rolling with him and he was always a belt higher than me. He told me, he was like, he's like, man, what are you doing in the half guard? Your half guard is really good. I don't think I even swept him or, or was able to score points, but I was a lot harder to fight from that position. I had a lot of knowledge, you know? So that was, he was the first kind of inspiration that I had, you know? And then I realized afterwards, I did some research on him that I probably had the best half guard teacher in the world at that time, you know? And it's kind of a unique game as well. As you were saying, there's not that many people at a high, high level that are doing it, especially these days. Do you feel that helps you a lot with the competition? Because you've been competing as much as anyone, I'd say, in the world. You seem to be one of the most active competitors the last like 10 years or so. Has that helped you a lot having a bit of a unique game? Absolutely. I think like uh, I remember one of the guys that I really look up to in the gym, Vinny. Vinny Marini was one of the best guys I ever trained with. He told me, I, I was talking to him on the mat one time and I was like, man, I was like, I was like, man, I'm having way more success now later in my career when I thought that I would be on the decline than, you know, I did when I was 25, you know, and he goes, he goes, things are just going in trends, man. He goes, people don't know how to deal with your game anymore. You know, he said, maybe five years ago, it would have been harder for you. But I think, yeah, having like a strange game, I think is really good. And how did it hold up against Adolfo in the gym? I'm just wondering, I, he doesn't seem like someone that would be very fun to play half guard against. It was a terrible experience. I remember the first time I trained with him. I was used to training with Cyborg all the time. So I, I was used to training with big guys and I knew how to get underneath them and stuff like that. But Cyborg's game and Adolfo's game are so different. Like Cyborg is very like flowy and open. He likes to transition. He gives you space to work so he can try to counter you. I remember I trained with Adolfo and Adolfo just smashed me into the ground the first day. And I couldn't go back to training for like two or three days because I couldn't move my neck. I was all twisted up, you know, like 
So training half guard with him is never fun. Now, one of the guys there that's really good that not a lot of people know about is Vinny Marino, the guy that I was talking about. He was my size, and he's someone that would, man, he'd walk through my half guard in 45 seconds to a minute. Every single time I'd be like, I'd be winning tournaments, beating good guys. I'd be really feeling good in the room against everybody that was my size, and he would come and put me over his lap and spank my ass. You know, it would be terrible. But a lot, there's a lot of good guys there that are really good half guard passers, you know. One thing I went through with Jaime Canuto for sure, because Jaime didn't really know how to p- pass the half guard when we first started training. And then we trained together so much that like we've made so many variations on the game from top and bottom just from training with each other so much, you know, like I can't go ABC with them. I got to try to go D, E, F. You got to go really far down into the loop. Competing in Brazil, this is one of the main things that I wanted to ask you about as well, actually. Do you actually know how many competitions you've done through the years or how many matches you've had or anything? I know that I've won probably about 100 tournaments in Brazil. So I don't know how many I've done because I lost a lot of tournaments too. Like there was a, there's probably 40 tournaments that I went out first round or went out the first or the second round, you know. I really don't have, have any idea how many matches I, I have. I know in the last couple of years, I started keeping track. I think from 2013 to 2000 and till present now, I think I've had over 200 matches in that time period. But I've been going down to Brazil since 2006, and like I was competing a lot, like right at like purple belt, especially brown belt. And the start of my black belt career was probably when I was doing the most amount of tournaments. I remember one year at black belt, I did 27 or 28 tournaments in a year. And was there anything you you learned from doing that amount of competition? Because Brazil is a pretty intense environment to compete. I know. What was some of the main things you kind of learned and improved on from doing that many matches down in Brazil? Just learn how to play the game. You know, like I think honestly, I think I, I won a lot of big matches in my career because I knew how to play the game. I knew how to get the guy into the spots that I was good at and then score or run the clock or force a penalty, like little things like that. Like I remember when I used to go compete all the time, like now I'll go compete. I want to get maybe to the venue like an hour beforehand. And then when the matches are over, I want to leave. You know, I don't want to stick around the rest of the day, you know. But when I was a kid, when I was younger, and all the all the way up into my black belt career, you know, until recently, I'd get there early, and then I would stay the whole day at the tournament. And, like, I would watch, like, little things, like other things maybe that I experienced in my match or things I would see other people do. And, like, I remember different things being like, man, that was really sneaky what that guy did, you know. I think just learn how to play the game, like kind of knowing the rules, especially with the Gion, like inside out, you know, the IBJJF. Now, that's the thing with AGP now, too. The rule set is completely different. So I'm trying to compete more in the AGP now so I can get more experience in that rule set. And did you have a kind of routine that you would be doing coming up to the competition that you would be working on? Or would you just be more relaxed, show up and kind of freestyle it? Before, I would always have like a set routine. The last couple of years, I just really like, I just try to keep myself relaxed as possible and have try to have fun more. And I'm like, I'll be 36 this year and I'm still competing at adult. I'm competing mostly at Masters in the AGP now because they have really good prize money. So I'm trying to do that circuit to see if I can get the money at the end of the year. But I just try to have fun with it now. Like, honestly, like in 2019, I think, yeah, 2019, I got hurt in 2018 at the very end of the year. When I came back, I really stressed myself out. You know, like I had a really good year in 2018 and I came back and I put all this like unnecessary pressure on myself. And I thought, man, you know, I could... I could just go open up a school or or teach or train, you know, if why am I competing if it's not fun? So now I just try to have as much fun and not put any pressure on myself, you know? 
where do you think that kind of pressure came from? Do you, like, would you ever feel like, oh, I only have a few years left of competing with the adults? I think that's exactly where it came from, you know, like, and for me, like, I had a couple of big wins that year. Like, I won the Masters Worlds. I beat Keishio in the finals. And I got second at the, at the World Pro. And I had some good wins at that tournament. And things kind of started to fall into place. And then I got hurt. And uh, I had to take some time off. I was like, I put all this pressure for me to get, to be exactly back to where I was, you know? And I didn't think about, hey, like, you know, this might take a little bit of time. Or maybe, I think that pressure really killed me a little bit that year. Like, 2019 was my worst year ever competing. And I think it was just mostly mentally, it's like me, like, weighing myself down. And then in 2020, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to have as much fun as possible and not be stressed out about it. And I really kind of started falling in love with competing again because I wasn't loving it in 2019. It was the only period of my life where I was like, you know, I wasn't enjoying it that much. Like I went to Tokyo to do the Asian Open and I won the Asian Open, which is a tournament that I always wanted to win. And I had zero fun until the tournament was over. You know, I was just stressing myself out. I thought, man, this is such an awesome trip. And then when I won the tournament, we went on party and I was like, oh, this is a great trip. And then I thought about it. And I was like, man, I was just completely stressed out for the last week when I could have had like an awesome time, you know? So that's what I'm trying to do now. I'm just trying to have a little bit more fun. And would you still get nervous at all when you would be competing now or would you just be enjoying it as you said? I get nervous as hell, man. Really? Eh? I get nervous as hell still to this day. <laughs> I had a, it was funny. We were in, a couple of months ago, I was in Curitiba for the, for the Brazilian nationals, the AGP Brazilian nationals. And I had a really tough first match in the bracket. I looked at the bracket. I only knew there was, there was one guy that maybe could beat me in the bracket, you know? And I was like, shit, I'm probably going to get him in the finals. And where they don't see the brackets at all, we got each other first round, you know? And uh, I was with one of the young guys from Brazil that I, I helped coach a bunch. He's one of the best brown belts at the gym. And he's just staying with me. And we were warming up together. And uh, we were drinking a beer after the tournament. And he said to me, he said, Coach, he said, I didn't really talk to you at all in the warm-up here. He said, because you looked like you were ready to kill someone. He said, you were super stressed out, you know. I said, I, I was, you know. Like, I, get, I, I try to keep myself calm now, but I still get nervous. If I said I didn't get nervous, I'd be, I'd be lying, you know. Especially like uh, back in the day, competing against all the Brazilians down in their home country, I'd say it was a stressful enough time. Probably the time I got the most nervous myself was as a blue belt in Ireland, just at like the Irish Open or some small competition. But the year before, I'd won everything in Ireland, so everyone kind of expected me. Maybe I just thought that they expected me. They probably didn't give a shit either way <laughs> what I was going to do. But I was thinking, oh, I, I need to win this now. Like, oh, if I don't win this again, then I'll, it means I'm getting worse. I won't get my purple belt, all these silly things. And in the first round of the Irish Open then that I had won the year before, I had some, it was a Brazilian guy and he had about six names written down on the, <laughs> on the, the registration. I was like, oh my God, he's going to be amazing. Like I, he was just a blue belt. He'd probably been training one or two years, but in my head, he was like an exotic black belt with all these six names. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And I think I won the match handy enough. And then I was like, oh, no need to be nervous at all. It's funny how we work ourselves up. Sometimes you see a situation, then you put your hands on that guy and then you're like, oh, I can beat this guy. And what kind of future goals do you have now with competition or with maybe having your own school? So I'm going to, I moved back to, to Canada because that was my, me and my wife's plan always was to open up a school here. So that's what I'm going to do eventually. The thing is, is like a lot of Canada is still going into lockdown. So um, like I know Ontario is going into the third, third lockdown right now. Here, luckily, we haven't had a ton of it, but I'm going to wait till everybody's vaccinated, I think, to open up a gym just so I don't run the risk of getting shut down. So for me, it's kind of been nice a little bit just to have a little bit of time to compete still. Um, I'm going to really just try to focus uh, competing in the AGP right now because 
it's a really good cash prize at the end of the year. Like um, for the bigger tournaments uh, for master one, if you win, you get like four grand us. So it's pretty good money. I honestly really enjoy the rule set too, where it's, have you seen the new rules for the AGP where everything is a point? So like an advantage is worth a point and they're only five minute matches. So like it takes a lot of the stalling out. So like if I swept you at the very start of the fight, but you get me in three arm locks and almost tap me, who did more in the, in the match? You, you did, you've had more volume in the fight. You know, you almost finished me three times, you know? So, uh, that would, you'd win the match three to two. So I really like the new rule set. I've really been trying to get used to it. So I think I don't, I, before I always thought, Oh, I'll compete till I'm 35, you know, and then I'll kind of call it quits. But man, I've been having so much fun competing. I do feel like I'm still improving that I think this is what I'm going to kind of focus on right now for the next little while is just the AGP, their circuit and see if I can win the money this year and then maybe try to repeat next year too. And just kind of keep playing things by ear. And are you looking forward to having your own school and kind of going into more of a coaching role absolutely like that's one thing like i always coached at people's gyms like i worked at i worked in singapore i worked in the states i worked in brazil and i do have people that i started coaching from very early on but where i traveled so much a lot of times like they'd have access to me for six months or maybe they were a blue belt when i started teaching them so i've never really been able to start people from from white belt you know so i think that's something that i'm really looking forward for me and my wife to do together you know she's good brown belt and she's a good teacher too so i think it'll be something cool like a good project that we can have like how we can set up the curriculum and how we're going to teach the basics and start people off from white belt so on you're probably going to have more experience than anyone else who's going to be opening a gym are you doing it in nova scotia that's where you're going to do it. yeah i'm going to do it in nova scotia that's I, cool, a lot man. of people told me oh you should move to vancouver you should move to toronto i had a lot of people tell me that because nova scotia is really small but honestly like i'm from here so i'd like to teach people from here you know for them to have access to, to me and to have a good to have a good program, a good school to be able to train at. And another thing too is like, if I lived in Vancouver, it's like a seven or eight hour flight. It'd be the same thing for me flying from Brazil. So I want to be close to my family, you know? So I, I'm really happy that we made the move here, you know? And I'm just kind of waiting now to see when we're going to open the school up. That's going to be brilliant to make sure to keep an eye out for that now. And thanks a million for coming on the show, Jake. Really appreciate getting to learn some of the stories about Brazil and Miami. Thanks a million. Thank you for having me on, buddy. It was great having a conversation with you and I haven't seen you in a little while, so it was, it was awesome for us to chat a little bit. Big thanks to Jake for coming on the show. It was really interesting to hear how he still gets nervous for competition, despite winning over 100 tournaments at the black belt level already, as well as how he's had some of his best results as he actually started to get older and come more into his 30s. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, share it with your friends, subscribe and give us a positive review. It helps a lot. We'll be back next week with the first of another two-part episode with everyone's favourite grappler, Craig Jones. Until then, Slánagas Banacht.